RUF, we began to broach the subject of sexuality as we deal with it in the modern form of dating. This week, we want to approach the subject of sexuality as it pertains to marriage and how it functions in marriage. Now, I recognize for many of you, you will immediately think to yourself, uh, what could that possibly have to do with us? None of us here, less in general, uh, are married. Why would this be interesting to us at all? Well, there's a couple reasons. Number one, I'm trying to save myself a little bit of time in pre-marriage counseling. Springtime for me is filled with all kinds of pre-marriage counseling, so I'm basically going to give to you uh, what I do for some of my pre-marriage counseling uh, folks during the springtime before the wedding season starts, which we love. But one of the main reasons is this. I find few things that are more greatly misunderstood than sexuality in marriage, mostly as it deals with your expectations for it. Does that make sense? In many ways, one of the great problems that newly married couples face is struggles adjusting to each other sexually. Why is that? I want to begin to prepare you now for that so that one day you can actually not be so surprised when it ends up being something different than what you thought uh, and hopefully be better than what you thought. In my opinion, most uh, college students have way too low expectations for the beauty of what God created to be encapsulated in marriage, of sexuality in marriage. So Ephesians chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 33 again as we did last week. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's word. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. In his best-selling Christian book on marriage, The Mystery of Marriage, Mike Mason says this about marriage. He said, marriage is an earthquake, an earthquake that will radically relocate the center of your universe. You know, our tendency is typically to treat people uh, as if they were not others at all. And you don't even really realize the degree to which you've been compromised on this. You have been raised, naturally so, to see the world through your own eyes and to assume that other people naturally see the world the way in which you do. But in a loving marriage, in a Christian marriage, we actually cease to be the center of our own universe. The truth is that there is nothing harder to do, however, than to begin in the process of marriage to see the world through my spouse's eyes. Hence the earthquake that Mason is talking about that most people are due for when marriage breaks into their lives. Last week we mentioned that the verse we read highlights the fact that men and women are created with fundamentally different ways of approaching life in general. And there's nowhere where that's seen more vividly than in our lives sexually. That's what we talked about last week. But because of our sinful natures, we tend to only want to see the world through our ways of relating to the world. Therefore, in order to learn to see sexuality through our partner's eyes, we have to take a look at how that functions in the realm of marriage. I simply want to draw your attention to three things tonight. First, the purpose of sex in marriage. We want to look very briefly at the various needs that a man and a woman has in marriage. And then finally, talk about some ground rules and some classic problems that people end up having in the early parts of their marriage. Okay? So buckle up. Got a lot to cover. Let's dive right in. 
First of all, the purpose of marriage. This is not all that complicated. The Bible gives us all kinds of reasons for why sexuality in general was created. Genesis chapter 1 verse 28 makes it very clear that sex was created for procreation. That is the advancement of the race. We are commanded to advance the race. It's part of what sexuality is for. Secondly, we find in the Bible that sexuality is given for recreation. Uh, there are places in the Bible I could take you to. Uh, Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. We might also go to the entire book of Song of Solomon where I think God makes it eminently clear that sexuality and marriage is something that can be done and enjoyed for no other reason than to be enjoyed. Recreation, a fun part of one's marriage. Take my word for it, okay? But all of those reasons, or at least both of those reasons, pale in significance. So you have that embarrassed look on your face. Let me assure you it'll get worse tonight. Anyway, both of those reasons, though, pale in significance to the third reason, what I think is really the heart of the reason for sexuality. That is, it is for procreation, it is for recreation, but finally it is for communication. That's the main purpose for which God created sexuality. Tim Keller, pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, says that when a man and a woman celebrate their marriage with the act of sex, there's something deeper going on there than just the pure physical act of sexuality. That is, in that act, there is a drama that is being enacted. A drama that celebrates God's relationship with His church. Listen to what he says. He says, therefore, sex both embodies and seals our ability to commit ourselves to one another. Did you catch that? He said sexuality embodies our commitment to each other. There is something in the act itself that says to the other person, I am with you profoundly, deeply, intimately. But at the same time, it also seals our ability to commit to one another. Keller goes on to say, in other words, it both exhibits our love and it builds our love at the same time. In other words, it's not just a way of displaying our love, it's a way of solidifying our love. In other words, we gain actual benefit from the act of sexuality in our marriages. Behind all of this, however, is the Hebrew word for sexual intercourse in marriage, which is simply the word that we mostly have translated to know, to know someone. You see, the Bible is saying that at the root of marriage is the desire to know someone deeply, intimately, and personally. And so in the act of sexuality, we are literally, bear with me, exposing ourselves. But not just in sort of a passive way of letting someone in on the intimate places that we typically save only for ourselves. But we are also in the process pledging to the other person that it is safe for them to make themselves known to us. Do you follow me? You see, because this is the real rub. We've talked about this this semester. There is inside the heart of every human being a longing to be known very deeply, to know all of the things that even we are sometimes embarrassed and ashamed of and have someone not reject us. So there's a lot of fear in letting people in and know who we are. And so in the act of married sexuality, God says it's not just a matter of you letting someone in, but it's also letting them know that it's safe to do so. 
In the act of sexuality, you are saying something, y'all. You are looking at the other person and saying, all of those promises that I made on our wedding day are still true. Look, weddings have really big promises. Have you noticed this? (laughs) You know, in a wedding, we talk about richer or poorer. We talk about sickness and health. We talk about better and worse. And then we seal it all off with this little phrase, till death us do part. Those are huge promises. And what I think the Bible understands is this, is that every single week of your marriage, every few days of your marriage is a threat to tempt you to break those promises. You know it and your spouse knows it. And so God has given His people a profoundly intimate, unspeakably personal act called sex whereby we look at our spouse and say, I know what happened this week. I know the things I said. I know the things I thought. I know the things that I did. But I want you to know that I'm still here. I've not left you. In the act of sexuality, we make a pledge to our spouses that we will, we will continue to be there. Which is the reason why I went to such great lengths last week to say that for this reason, sexuality outside of marriage is making promises that you simply cannot deliver if breaking up is still a possibility. Sexually speaking, we are making pledges with our bodies that our souls resonate with. So the purpose of sexuality at its heart is for communication, to say something. But secondly, we have to look therefore at his needs and her needs and looking at how men and women do this. In other words, when we are communicating at this particular level, what can we expect to find when we do so? What are we going to find in the other person? Well, here's the answer. (laughs) Exactly what we found last week. That is, men can expect, because they are commanded to love their wives and wives are commanded to respect their husbands, That when their wives share deeply with them about their hopes and dreams, that they will find that what she longs for is to be loved, to be sacrificed for, to be served, to be made secure where she can influence those around her. Hence, husbands love. What do you mean by love? As Christ loved the church and what? Gave himself up for her. Gentlemen, that's your primary responsibility, is to give yourself up for your spouse. Women, though, can expect to find that when their husbands open themselves up to them, they'll find someone who desperately wants to be significant, to be the man, to dream dreams, and to do whatever he can to change his little plot of the world that he has the ability to do so. Same thing, in other words. Look, every now and then what happens is, is you'll find people from the secular world, not even necessarily from Christian backgrounds, who will do research on couples to find out what they say are their fundamental needs in marriage. A number of years ago, there was a guy named William Harley who wrote a book called His Needs, Her Needs, where he went and did some extensive interviews of the top five female needs reported by married women versus the top five male needs. Now listen, if there was ever a time to take notes, this is it. Top five kids right here coming to you uh, uh, about uh, these needs. Let's start with the ladies. Ladies first, right? 
What did, what did Harley find in his interviews with women? Listen, gentlemen, number one, affection. A wife wants no affection. To be treated romantic, romantically. To be made to feel special. Now why? It's not just because she's sappy and sentimental and that's the way she's wired. But you see, gentlemen, to be treated romantically means that she knows that you still value her. She's still valuable to you. And therefore, you'll go to great lengths to save the thing for which you most value in life. Affection, gentlemen, is the number one thing she needs. Number two, conversation. Listen to me, gentlemen. It affirms your future wife's importance in your life when you let her in on your life. Even if you don't know how to say what it is that you're thinking, to say those things is the way in which she will hear that you love her. A fundamental, profound need is for conversation. Even if it's nothing more than 10 minutes a day where you stop and go down a list of what you did that day. It's profound. Thirdly, honesty and openness. Isn't that interesting? Number three was women saying, what I long for most is for honesty from him. In other words, remember that her inward sort of social orientation means that she wants to get to know you more deeply than anyone else. She wants to be able to say that I know him better than anyone else and you have to let her in on that. Honesty. To allay her fears that you're hiding something, gentlemen. Because you leave for the day oftentimes. You go out into your world. The two of you will typically spend separate lives. Ladies, you'll likely go to your job and career and he'll go to his. And you lead these separate lives. How do we know that what's going on? How do I know what's going on in your life? Honesty does that. Fourthly, financial support. Now, don't laugh, guys. It's not because she just loves to shop. Women be shopping, right? That's not what what it's saying. Financial support translates to a woman as security. Knowing that there's a paycheck coming makes her feel as if things are safe. It has nothing to do with just wanting to spend. It's a simple knowledge of saying, I want to know that where I'm going to be is a safe place financially. Fifthly and finally, family commitment. Guys, a woman wants to know that what you do at home is more important than what you do at work. It's what drives her. It's what she's made out of. Now let me ask you a question, men. Do you hear those themes coming out? Because I think you can sum all that up by what Paul says in Ephesians 5 when he says this, Husbands, love your wives. Love them. Sacrifice for them. It's what she desires. It's not praise. It's not presence. It's love. Okay, to a man now. What are the guy's needs that he reported? All right? Ladies, listen up. Because the first one's going to make you cynical. (laughs) Men said, number one need out of all my needs in marriage is sex. You guessed it. Right? Sex. Ladies, please understand something. That there's something that happens on the marriage bed with a man that may look to you as wildly superficial, but it's not. There are profound, fundamental things going on inside of a man when he celebrates sexuality with a woman, and it is the place where he will most likely feel significant if he is to be made to feel so at all with you. Be very careful. Be very careful how you tread upon that. I know people typically think that guys are the ones who are the least sensitive about sexuality. That's a lie. They're the most frivolous and careless with it. 
but they're not the ones that, for whom it means the least. I think it means the most. Typically speaking, in between males and females, when you begin to deal with various forms of sexual dysfunction, every psychiatrist will tell you that it's infinitely more complicated to sort of deal with in a man than it is with a woman. Interesting. Sexuality, it's very important, ladies. Number one. Number two, companionship. You didn't think he'd say that, did you, ladies? The number two thing he said is companionship. He wants to know that you're willing to do the stuff that he likes to do with him and take a genuine interest in it and not just roll your eyes. Oh, and by the way, talking is not an activity. Thank you. Please understand that. In other words, it's finding some things that he enjoys having you along to do. Thirdly, trust. Men said trust. Ladies, let me ask you a question. Why is it that men are so defensive about their driving? I got it. Would you just calm down? I know where I'm going. Yeah? It's a tiny little way that communicates to him that you don't trust him. And you don't think he's able to do it. <laughs> the irony is he's oftentimes not able to do it. But here's the deal. You've got to find a way to communicate to him that you still trust him. Thirdly, fourthly, domestic support. Listen, ladies, a man is in constant competition with himself and with other men. And because of that, the world buffets him. Give him a soft place to land at home. Give him a break when he comes in from the things that have sort of warred against him during the day where he can finally feel a place where here I don't have to battle anyone. It's a great and glorious gift that my wife has passed on to me that she has made my home a place where I love to be. She knows how to make it pleasant when I get there, even when, typically speaking, she doesn't feel like she's in all that pleasant a mood. That is a gift of self-sacrifice that she gives to me, and it's absolutely beautiful, and you do well to learn from her on it. Fifthly, here's a cat's out of the bag. Gentlemen, men put fifth as their top, a fifth top need admiration. To know that you think that he is something, that he's different, that he's special, that he's the man. Do you hear all those five things, ladies? He longs to know that you think that he's the man. Think about it for a second. Why is it in our culture that it's a cliche that the man has an affair with his secretary? How original. You know, if your, your husband comes home and, you know, I've had an affair with a girl at work. Oh, way to go, you know. It's a cliche to think about that. But have you ever thought about why that happens? Think about it for a second. You see, when a man goes to work, who is it that gets to see him make the big sale? Who is it that gets to see him land the big account? Who is it that gets to see him sort of make the big impression on the client to where, you know, he makes the big paycheck. Secretary. You follow me? In other words, she gets to see him at his most proud. And if every time he comes home, or if every time he sees you, he is constantly being nitpicked about the how many times he's not come home, he just simply looks and sees where it suffers by comparison. Ladies, be very careful how you communicate to your man that you long to have him around. Because he'll go to the place and stay at the place where he feels the most significant. You know what he's saying? Wives, respect your husbands. 
For 2,000 years, the Bible has said this. <laughs> Apostle Paul said it 2,000 years ago. And here we are, ancient wisdom, and our generation stumbling upon it like, oh, wow, I never thought of that. Men long in, 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 in married sexuality for significance. Ladies long in married sexuality for love. Thirdly and finally, now that we've laid all that out, now we can start to talk about the issue of sexuality. I think it's actually a whole lot easier to understand the struggles that people have when they get married in sex if you keep these things in your mind. What are the ground rules and what are the potential problems that people have? Okay, uh, four ground rules. Four things to think about. Number one, if sex is primarily about communication, then the goal of sex cannot simply be your own self-gratification. Listen, men, (laughs) very carefully. Sex is not about gratification, nor is it about performance. But that's exactly the way men and female respectively deal with it. On the one hand, a man tends to deal with sexuality in terms of being, bear with me, goal-oriented. And the sooner we get to that goal, the better. You follow me? I'm not going to draw any pictures. Ladies tend to be experience-centered. That is, there's something about the experience of being held, of being intimate, of sharing things together. And so typically what happens is a man tends to look at it and think, well, sexuality is for me to experience my sense of fulfillment, and hopefully in the process, you will too. (laughs) Maybe you will, maybe you won't. It doesn't really matter because it's really about me. Gentlemen, I know you would never say that out loud on your wedding day, but I'm telling you it's what you think. Because up until this time, that's the only way that you've had to relate to yourself sexually is self-gratification. Ladies, since ladies tend to deal with sexual desire, and it's not that it's any less intense in women. Women's sexual desire can be over-the-top intense. It just comes in different terms. A woman will tend to approach sexuality with some measure of fear. Is there some way in which I'm satisfying? Am I being satisfying to him? And so there's a lot of nerves and a lot of anxiety very early on. But in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul actually deals with this question where he looks and says that your body belongs to your spouse. It's not one to the other. Gentlemen, your body belongs to your wife. She has rights over it. And ladies, vice versa. It is a shared sense of ownership of each other's body. And so Paul looks and says, therefore, don't deny each other. Don't deny each other sexual gratification. Paul looks and says, therefore, we cannot use it for gratification or for performance. Sexuality always is used to say something to another person. This is one of the things is why we always try to avoid. And some of y'all are going to think that I'm, why would he mention this? Don't ever use sex as a bargaining tool. This is sort of one of the ladies kinds of things. And if, after a while, ladies, you're going to find that typically a man wants it more than you do. Sometimes. And what you'll find is, is it's easy to look and say, well, we'll just wait and see if you have a night tonight. Now, won't we? We can't do that. We don't use it as a bargaining chip. It's there to communicate something. That's the first thing. Secondly, sex has to be uh, equally valued and it has to be reciprocal. In other words, no one has the rights to who initiates whether or not we're going to have sex tonight. Does that make sense? It's okay for the woman to initiate and say, tonight's the night. 
It's okay for the man to initiate. Oftentimes what happens is we lie to ourselves and end up sort of trading responsibilities. It's like, well, you know, truth is it's really up to me, or the truth is it's really up to you. No. The Bible says it's equal, equal responsibility for the other to be about the needs of the other person and to give of oneself in that particular way. Thirdly, sex is supposed to be in marriage, listen very carefully, regular and continuous. Another thing that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 is that don't deny each other unless you're going to do it for a time. In other words, sex is supposed to be happening on a regular basis. Now, here's what you're thinking to yourself. <laughs> Every one of my pre-marriage counseling people are thinking the same thing. You're thinking, huh, <laughs> regular, continuous, 24-7, regular and continuous enough for you there, preacher boy? <laughs> right? I got you regular and continuous. Look, okay. Be honest enough to admit that it is well within the realm of possibility that the law of diminishing returns is going to affect you. And even, listen, 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 bear with me, I told you, I warned every one of you, be willing to accept the fact that anything can become routine. And some of you think, as crazy as this sounds, there is going to come a time, and every married person would agree with this, where you're going to get tired. You're going to get busy. You're going to get distracted. You're going to get mad. You're going to hold a grudge. And all of a sudden, you're going to wake up however many days, sometimes weeks later, and look and realize, we've not shared that together in a long time. And most of you are thinking, <laughs> Maybe for you there, boy, but not me. Listen to me. It's going to happen. It's absolutely a part of every single marriage. But Lauren Winner, in her wonderful little book, Real Sex, something I would encourage all of you to uh, read. She's the author of uh, Girl Meets God. Says in there that we ought to think of sex not as something that's like, you know, the next wild, crazy, you know, uh, um, swinging from the chandelier experience, Right? She says sex is a responsibility that we simply look at each other every now and then and say, you know what? It's just time. It's been too long. The two of us need to be together. doesn't matter what mood we're in. You follow me? Regular and continuous. Fourthly, though, this absolutely means that sex needs a proper context. Listen very, very carefully. Sexuality is a very, very bad way. Gentlemen, you got to hear me on this. Write this down somewhere. Sexuality is a terrible way to solve the problems that you're having in your marriage. A terrible way of solving your problems. It's the best way of celebrating the fact that you have worked through your problems. Did you catch that? Before you begin to approach your spouse in, in the marriage bed... You have got to clear the air of those kinds of antagonisms that rest inside the heart that need to be dealt with. Follow me, gentlemen? You can't, you've heard the old phrase. Uh, men are like microwaves. Women are like crock pots in the way in which they heat up. For our guys, it's just like that. For women, it tends to be much slower. Gentlemen, what this means is, is there's work to be, to be done in your relationship sexually with your spouse and respecting the fact that she needs context. Okay, 
Speaking of the problems that people typically deal with, three simple problems, and we'll finish uh, uh, with what people, and we'll finish with this whole uh, series. Look, problem number one, early adjustment issues. Look, the issues that people tend to have sexually, save yourself some, you know, marriage counseling in the first year of your marriage by simply knowing that it takes a while to learn how the other person's body works. And listen to me, I know right now that some of you come into this room with a vast amount of sexual experience already. There's no denying that. There's no way of denying that. And I know that you think that you kind of got all that worked out. How hard can it be? Answer, really hard. Really challenging. Because you're going to be forced to deal with the other person's sensibilities. To deal with the other person's sensitivities. To deal with the other person's discomfort. It takes a while to get used to each other. Here it is. Everybody calls me the most unromantic person when I say this. But I'm telling you, it's going to help you. The sex that you have on your honeymoon will typically be at the low end of the good sex range. It just will. The longer that you're with someone, the more you learn about them, the more you know the kinds of ways in which they respond. There's something profound there. Give it some time. Don't freak out early. Don't start racing around to read a bunch of books and see a bunch of counselors. Give it some time to learn to adjust. And not only that, gentlemen, gentlemen, one week before I got married... I was sitting on the number one tee of a golf course in Memphis. And I had a, a very dear ministry friend of mine, older man. I looked at him, I was like, well, one week. Got any advice for me? Trying to make a joke, something. And he looked at me, he says, yes, I do. Two words, go slow. Gentlemen, listen carefully. Early adjustment. Number two, gender difference problems. Typically, women will find men to be too abrupt, too rough too insensitive to her needs. Men will typically find women to be too slowly aroused, too particular about like the circumstances of how sex happens or where it happens, uh, or too emotionally complicated to sort of invest the time. Listen to me. Be aware of it beforehand. It's just that simple. Just don't assume and expect that, ladies, he is going to respond to you sexually the way in which you've always thought that he would. And vice versa, gentlemen. In other words, begin the process from the moment of your engagement, really from the moment at which you begin to think about the person that you're even dating, about marrying, to say, my job is to see the world through your eyes. Let me in. Thirdly and finally, sexual past problems. Look, there are very few sexual problems that people have in marriage that are due to uh, reasons of biology. You know, we have something wrong with us or something. Very few. Typically, there's some kind of emotional baggage or psych psychological baggage that someone's carrying in the marriage that needs to be worked through. Guilt, shame, past perversion, pornography, homosexuality. Some of these struggles have to be worked through and can oftentimes contribute to a lot of the complications very early on. What that means is, is if you're a single person now, which the vast majority of this room is, Now's the time to begin to search out for, for some kind of healing for broken sexuality. Well, where are we going to find that? Where's that going to come from? Well, it gives me a chance to sort of wrap up this entire series with what I think is so beautiful about this and what I think is so mind-blowing about this. 
Because what, what the Bible teaches about sexuality is that sex was not intended to be simply about itself. In the Bible, sexuality points away from itself. In many ways, sex in marriage is anticipatory. You follow me? There's something in the future that we're waiting for. And you know what that is? It pictures a future where Jesus, King Jesus, comes down and gathers his bride to himself, which is the Christian church. All who name the name of Christ. Look, y'all, that's what sex is for. It's almost as if God looked and said, look, I want you to know the depth of intimacy and communion and joy and beauty that I want to have with you. I want you to know what that's about. You know what? Here's sex. (laughs) You cannot say that the Bible devalues sex because of that. If you are prudish about sex, the Bible is against you. The Bible celebrates sexuality in the most beautiful of ways. And God is looking at you, and this is going to sound so graphic that it might embarrass you. He's saying, do you think sex is great? Just wait until you see my face. That sound irreverent to you? Does that sound inappropriate yuck look y'all the God of the Bible is so sex positive (laughs) that he looks at your sexuality and says I gave this to you so you could see what it ultimately is going to be about because there's going to come a day when you see me where sex will look something like just an appetizer but when you're with me that'll be the banquet and so I'll leave you this semester (laughs) This year with this one question that I've really been asking you every single week. Is there space carved out in your spiritual DNA for a God who relates to his people like that? Because if there's not, it's not the God of the Bible. And your rejection of it is a rejection of a good thing, of a beautiful thing. And it's so wonderful and so wondrous and so beautiful that I can stand up here in front of you week after week and say, that's an invitation for you. Not because it's sort of some compulsion that's laid upon your shoulders, even though there's a sense in which that's true. I'm saying there's something so mind-numbingly beautiful set in front of you that it in and of itself is inviting Even if this wasn't true and the Bible wasn't true, you'd still wish that it was. Would you not? Man, sex is just the appetizer. (laughs) You just wait. Wait until we get the real meal. Now, here's the deal. I don't have any idea what that means. I really don't. But it's got to be pretty good. (laughs) And if you can walk away from this tonight saying to yourself, yeah, that would be kind of nice. You know what you did? You heard the gospel. You heard that there is good news. In a place where in marriage there rarely is good news. Folks, that's the invitation. (laughs) To find in Christ someone who is so mind-blowing that it actually rivals sex itself. Believe me, 
Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, would you grant us that moment of being able to see what we otherwise simply can't see. And that is you through the eyes of joy and through the eyes of anticipation and with a sense of longing. Because Lord, in many ways we look back at the things in which we've been through even this semester, sexually speaking. And we feel torn and tattered and dirty. And yet we see something in you that is healing and that is forgiving and that is gracious and doesn't send us back cowering, cloaked in shame, but sends us back to you rather with a sense of anticipation that one day you will simply eclipse everything that we've ever struggled with, everywhere where we've ever failed sexually, upon seeing your face, you'll wash it all away. And we will be lost in wonder, in love, and in praise. For that we are deeply grateful. And for that we deeply long. And so for every empty soul here tonight, perhaps those who are realizing, perhaps maybe even for the first time, that they've never thought of you in that way. That the truth is you've been distant. You've been aloof. And they didn't realize that you wanted that kind of intimacy. Holy Spirit, would you at this very moment come and grab that person and wash over them with the beauty that is the joy you give in the gospel. Would you do that for us? You would make this entire semester, this entire year worth it if you would do as much. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.